Today's episode is brought to you by the audiobook edition of What Truth Sounds Like, written and narrated by Michael Eric Dyson. What Truth Sounds Like is about a historic meeting between Robert F. Kennedy and James Baldwin that transformed RFK's thinking about race, politics, and the African-American lived experience. Barack Obama stated that, quote, everyone who speaks after Michael Eric Dyson pales in comparison, unquote. Start listening now at macmillanaudio.com slash what truth sounds like. And now welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the misguided transformation of our thinking about healthcare causing us to accept the idea of it being a market-based commodity. And we'll also look at who continues to support this idea and why it continues to make suckers of us all. Clips today come from Citations Needed, The Zero Hour, Doomed and Intercepted, with our call to action featuring healthcarenow.org. And remember that all of the details about each clip, including their source and original air date, are listed in the show notes and should be visible from whatever device you're using to listen. Over time, do you think this this kind of language begins to rewire people's brains um, and the way we think about healthcare? Um, and how does that kind of rewiring to the extent you think this commodity-based language is popularized? To what extent do you think that kind of makes a reimagining of healthcare as a right and as something that maybe is single payer uh, that much more uh, difficult, if not impossible? Uh, yeah, I think that that's absolutely the case. And I think that that's very much baked into the history of 20th century healthcare reform. During World War II and slightly after, uh, there was a push for national health insurance, what we would think of today as single payer. It was also very popular, the idea that the NHS, the National Health Service uh, in the UK, was also founded around this time. And Beveridge, the guy who comes up with this reform, was a very uh, famous guy on the circuit here. He wrote a best-selling book. He spoke a lot. And so the idea of uh, universal health care as a right was actually uh, a lot more popular and a lot more common than it is now. The AMA and some other moneyed interests pushed back that particular reform uh, by the late 40s. But, you know, only 15 years later, they managed to pass Medicare and Medicaid, which doesn't go as far as national health insurance does, but, you know, was still a major, major reform and extension of the public sector and the idea of healthcare as a right. Um, and then since then, we've really, you know, turned in a much more neoliberal direction. And I think that that's when you can start to pinpoint the rise of consumer rhetoric when it comes to healthcare, in particular uh, insurance. I think that this happened for uh, a variety of reasons that are mostly trackable uh, in terms of macroeconomic trends. You know, there's a lot of inflation uh, in the 70s. There's sort of an abandonment eventually of any push toward universalizing uh, a public sector program that kind of peters out a few years after the passage of Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, and you also start to get this rise of, you know, more reactionary economists who write about uh, healthcare and health insurance as a moral hazard. Uh, the idea being that to keep costs down, uh, we have to basically optimize individual behaviors and make sure that people aren't using more healthcare than they actually need simply because it's free. 
Uh, I think that these ideas are very silly on their face. Those greedy, greedy healthcare <laughs> yeah. takers. Stop going to all those doctors. Exactly. I mean, I don't think that anyone enjoys doing these things. Personally, I just had a kidney transplant for the hell of it. Just for know? the hell of it. Yeah. Well, and it's probably because yeah. you weren't exposed to that cost because you have insurance. So why not? It's true. It's Friday. Now. It's true. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, as silly as it is, people still take this very seriously. I mean, that's essentially the logic behind cost sharing, behind deductibles, co-pays, co-insurance is basically the idea that if you don't have any skin in the game, uh, you're just going to force this poor insurance company to pay out the nose willy nilly just because you're bored. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think that uh, trying to implement some consumer discipline uh, and get people to use healthcare more responsibly uh, is something that we start to see after that. I once typed in healthcare consumers into that Google Ngram uh, one time, and it's you know just around here in the 70s that it just starts to skyrocket mm-hmm. out of nowhere. And I think it's because of this market logic that really gets injected by some of these AEI fellows who start writing about it. Ultimately, I think that the rhetoric serves to shift the conversation from, you know, a collective societal goal to a matter of individual prudence. Uh, it turns acquiring health insurance into an individual responsibility. And I think that we still see that a lot today in the logic of the ACA. You know, the individual mandate is nothing else besides, you know, basically a stick to make sure that individual people act as the most perfect possible consumers of healthcare. Uh, And there hasn't been until now, I think over the past couple of years, there hasn't been a major reckoning with this logic uh, in the political sphere for a long time. You spend a lot of time going from place to place talking about single payer and trying to convince people. I assume that this is probably the number one objection you get. This is a very popular trope in American culture, especially right-wing media. They completely erase the fact that almost everyone loves their, their socialized medicine in other countries and that, that it's somehow uniquely un-American because it undermines our choice. Can you talk about how you push back against that trope and, and how, how that trope became so popular? Is it ingrained in our sort of Puritan ethic? What, what, what is the mechanism there other than just rank propaganda? Uh, yeah, I think that that's exactly right. That is an objection that – Uh, single-payer opponents bring up a lot uh, and that people ask about in good faith. Uh, What I usually respond is the idea that, you know, yeah, I think that choice in some things is valuable to a lot of people. And in healthcare, when you think about choice, people want a choice of provider. That is very important. What we have now, what those people tend to be referring to when they say, but choice, but choice, they're talking about insurance coverage. And that's a situation wherein I'd argue that Choice isn't something that we want or should aspire to. Basically, um, you know, the ACA markets, the ones that are functioning uh, how they're supposed to anyway, have a choice of several different plans that one can choose. And even people with employer-based coverage tend to have choice between uh, at least a few different options. And those tend to be delineated either by company uh, or by network. Each one has a certain network of providers or you know certain things that they cover, a cost-sharing scheme. So you can get a high deductible or a low deductible plan. High deductible plans tend to have lower premiums. Low deductible plans have higher premiums. Uh, you might have a plan with co-insurance, with co-pays, things like that. And so choice when it comes to healthcare coverage is something that 
can actually be very oppressive <laughs> for the consumer. I think that anyone who's ever had the experience of shopping on the individual markets for a health insurance plan or of, you know, flipping through the manual, trying to figure out what the heck is covered once you actually have one, uh, that's not exactly a great situation. Yeah. And, you know, choice between coverage is basically how we get tiers of access, how we get people with really, really good plans, really, really skimpy ones, uh, and how now the conversation is being pushed even further toward the right. Uh, the Trump administration is trying to get shorter term plans onto the market as opposed to, you know, ones that include the 10 essential health benefits. Um, the idea being that now people will have the choice to have, you know, even more meager coverage, but, you know, for even less money. And so I think that choice when it comes to coverage misses the fact that that's not the choice that people want. People want the choice of provider. They want to be able to choose their doctors uh, and stick with the providers that they have relationships with, not the actual coverage. You know, nobody has any emotional attachment to Cigna or Aetna. Um, <laughs> How dare you? I have much corporate loyalty <laughs> yeah. to my... Hold on. Yeah. I got to check my card to see what it is. Cigna. Yes. I love Cigna. Yeah. I want yeah, to talk too. about... I want to talk about that a little bit here because this idea of choice is a perverse one. Obviously, you have the kind of Marxist argument that you don't have a lot of choice when you're starving to death. Um, you don't have a lot of choice when, you know, X million Americans have to go to GoFundMe to get a surgery done. Um, that even the very like notion of choice, you know, it's the old cliche, choice without options doesn't mean anything. And for many people, they don't have any options. So what, when, what good does the concept of choice mean? Exactly. I think that's absolutely the case. And I think that when you have someone who is very, very strapped for cash, the idea that they can now spend less for way less coverage isn't exactly an enticing offer. You're basically saying that you want to usher in a situation wherein poor people can afford risk and little else. Uh, that security, that genuine coverage costs more. I mean, that doesn't mean that there's actually a meaningful choice there at play. Now let's talk about a different kind of healthcare, a kind of healthcare that they have in every other developed country, a kind of healthcare that we could have here if we had the political will and imagination to make it happen. I am, of course, talking about Medicare for all. You know, a lot of political insiders and pundits roll their eyes when the subject comes up and adopt this attitude of world-weary superiority and tell you why politically it can never happen, even as everywhere around us there are signs that politically it can happen and that politically it should happen. Still, we get these world-weary shrugs about it, even though the signs are all around us. And even though, until Bernie Sanders ran for office, no major political figure and no major political party was willing to endorse the idea of single-payer health care or Medicare for all. In fact, the Democratic Party is still resisting the idea with every ounce of its institutional being, even as the Democratic base increasingly supports the idea. And so do voters across 
the political spectrum. Perhaps not a majority yet. It depends on which poll you look at. According to some polls, there is a majority. According to others, there is not. But the level of support for this program, which has been growing over recent years, is astonishing, given the, given the fact that neither party supports it and given the fact that, again, until recently, Bernie Sanders was the only major politician supporting it. That has changed somewhat. Now we have 16 Democratic senators, including all of that party's presidential candidates from the Senate endorsing a bill, co-sponsoring a bill authored by Bernie on that subject. So is Medicare for all an idea whose time has come? Now there are signs from interesting places around the country. Here's one of them. Revive Health, which is a group that serves so-called stakeholders in the healthcare industry as as it is practiced in this country and only in this country. Revive Health does an annual poll of trust among the different players or stakeholders in the system. Those players include hospitals or as they are now known, healthcare systems because they include provider practice management groups and diagnostic testing centers as outpatient centers as well as hospitals themselves. So systems, that's one of the players in our complex process. Uh, doctors, another, and then health plans or health insurers being the third. Now, Revive Health has uh, measured the trust among these players on an annual basis. This time around, they added another set of players, uh, consumers, as they are called in the lingo of our unique and uniquely messed up healthcare system. Who do consumers trust? Needless to say, consumers, that is to say people like you and me, trust those health plans, those health insurers, least of all. But that is not the most important or informative thing about the Revive Health survey of consumers. They themselves say that perhaps the most revealing sign of the times in their latest survey is, and I quote, consumer trust in healthcare is so low that they like the government to run it. 60, and I'm still quoting, 63% of respondents said that if they were a U.S. senator, they would vote yes on Medicare for all. So for any institutional Democrats or liberals who are listening, or for any self-described policy wonks who, who love to say it is beyond the reach of the politically achievable, let me repeat that for you. 63% of respondents said that if they were a U.S. senator, they would vote yes on Medicare for all. This is not a poll of Democrats or liberals. This is a randomly selected poll of the American people, two-thirds of whom say they would vote for a Medicare for all bill. Now, why is it, given the growing popularity of this plan, that the Democratic Party establishment seems intent on using its institutional strength to subvert, undermine, and reject the idea? I take you now to an article from The Intercept, and the headline is DCCC Internal Polling Presented to Members of Congress Panned. Single-payer healthcare. It's written by Zed Jelani, who's been on the program. Uh, basically, it says this. Stan Greenberg, who has done some very fine polling work that we've cited on this program, uh, but he does what, you know, the clients ask, I guess. Uh, he briefed House Democrats on his survey findings. But, you know, it's an old truism in polling that you get the results you ask for in your questions. Here's the only... 
Democrats were not asked and voters were not asked. Uh, and this was a survey of 52 so-called battleground districts, uh, half of which held by Democrats, half held by Republicans. He did not ask voters, what do you think of Medicare for all? Do you support Medicare for all? What's your preferred system for health care? He didn't answer any of those questions. The only question he asked was, if you could change one thing about your health care or health insurance, what would it be? Now, if someone asks you about your health care or health insurance, it probably comes from your employer. Otherwise, it's some other form of plan. Perhaps you bought it individually or you're on Medicare if you're older. But that was if you could change one thing about your health care, it would not occur, I think, to most of us to say, well, I'd turn it into Medicare for all, because then it's not your health care anymore, is it? It's a different health care. So really, Stan Greenberg didn't ask Democrats what they think of Medicare for all. Nevertheless, there is so much support for the idea out there that 12% of them said, make it single payer, universal or socialized. That is, uh, that is a lot of people offering an answer to a question that wasn't asked. But apparently, that was presented to Democratic members of Congress not as a win, but as, oh, only 12% of voters say they want it. So, in other words, slanted question in my estimation, slanted result, and if that weren't bad enough, uh, the plan went on to offer quote-unquote conservative arguments against uh, Medicare for all. So, uh, and qu quite a few of them, apparently, all the re likely Republican lines of attack, it was called, but it went on to say bureaucrats, reduce the quality of care, limited access to care, slow the rate of medical product, manage, ration, increase federal, federal spending by at least 15 trillion, which is a false figure uh, circulated by Democratic opponents of uh, Bernie Sanders, etc., etc., etc. In other words, in the guise of presenting Republican attacks, the Democratic Party establishment, the DCCC, um, went on to actually attack Medicare for all itself. So what are the takeaways from all of this? Number one, if you are a person who gives a dollar to political campaigns or many dollars to political political campaigns, for the love of everything that is decent, do not give anything to the DCCC ever again. Eventually, perhaps they'll even stop sending you annoying fundraising emails, but in the interim, you know that you will not be supporting nonsense like this or the DCCC's gratuitous attack on a progressive Democrat, Laura Moser, in a Texas congressional uh, Democratic primary. So don't, number lesson number one, don't give your money to the DCCC. Lesson number two, of course, the party establishment hates Medicare for all because they get money from a lot of financial interests that make a lot of money off the crappy system we have today. So we need to get politicians who don't seek the big, big money, but seek your support instead.
Today's episode is sponsored by the Dollar Shave Club, which is almost a misnomer these days, as they now go well beyond just shaving. They deliver everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. Shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel, even a wipe that'll leave your tush feeling tingly clean. For instance, their amber and lavender calming body cleanser is really something to behold. I've never smelled anything like it. But all of Dollar Shave Club's products are great and made with top-shelf ingredients that won't break your budget. Plus, shipping is free with your membership. And since they have so many great items you're going to want to try, you're going to want to get their Daily Essential Starter Set for just 5 bucks. It comes with Body Cleanser, One Wipe Charlie's, their amazing butt wipes, their world-famous Shave Butter, and their best razor, the Six Blade Executive. Keep the blades coming for a few more bucks a month and add in shampoo, toothpaste, or anything else you need. Check it all out at dollarshaveclub.com best. That's dollarshaveclub.com best. Medicare Extra is very much like Pete Stark's AmeriCare proposal from many years ago, which I'm sure very few people are familiar with, but which has uh, maintained a kind of cult following among uh, certain single-payer wonks over the year and over the years. And the way that uh, AmeriCare and Medicare Extra works, the idea is if we want to get everyone onto Medicare we got to transition from where we are to there. And so how do we do that? And the idea is, okay, so let's look at our system right now. We got a lot of people are already on Medicare. Okay, cool. They're, they're on board. You know, maybe we'll improve their benefits. Some we got people on Medicaid. Let's just switch the Medicaid people over to Medicare. That's an easy move. And they're already on public insurance. Not too hard. Then we got these people who are on these other public programs like the VA or Indian Health Service or TRICARE. For those people, you know, not very many people. A lot of them, they like their stuff. The VA people, the troops, they love VA. You know, the Native Americans, they like the Indian Health Service. They really like that stuff. It's already public. And in fact, they, even the hospitals are often public, so we'll just leave that how they how how it is. But then comes the tip, the difficult question, which is: we got you know 150 million people on employer insurance. We got another 12 million or so who have this individual insurance through the Obamacare exchanges. How are we going to get them onto Medicare? And the Medicare extra answer, and the Americare answer is: let's create a public option that goes into the employer market and goes into the individual market and let's just get everyone to switch over. We can dominate those markets. Medicare is way more efficient than any private insurer. We've got a lot of power since it's the state behind it where we can really coax almost everyone to switch over to Medicare because it's going to be cheaper. It's going to be easier. It's going to be great. And that's the basic idea behind Medicare Extra is people who are already on a public program, let's switch them over onto Medicare, this new Medicare plan. And people who are on a private program, let's basically allow them to choose to switch over to Medicare Extra, a a no-brainer choice that almost anyone's going to make because the premiums are going to be way lower, the service is going to be better, and the government can subsidize the price of of the premiums as, as much as it wants and basically get everyone switched over like that.
So from the, from the outset, it looks like, you know, uh, a good proposal from the center of American progress. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's a positive proposal. There are details that need to be hammered out or uh, improved somewhat. But, you know, this is, uh, if people who listen to the show know Tim Faust, uh, this is similar to some of the stuff he's proposed. Uh, Mike Kongsel at the Roosevelt Institute uh, has proposed something like this. Uh, John Walker, whose piece we talked about earlier, uh, who, uh, at PPP, the guy who wrote the second lowest cost sewer plan piece, that guy, he, he proposes a plan like this. So it's very much in the single payer, uh, mainstream, uh, and is not really that dissimilar from the kind of, I don't know, purest single payer schemes. The only way it differs is that it transitions people through this sort of public option mechanism as opposed to transitioning them through, you know, uh, uh, say, phasing them in by age, which is what Sanders proposes, where like in year one, everyone over 55 is on Medicare. In year two, everyone over 45 and so on. That's sort of how they phase it in. This one phases this one phases it in through a different mechanism. But, you know, it's all leading to the same eventual outcome. Right. And just to sort of give everyone who may not be familiar with the Center of American Progress uh, an idea of just how big of a move, I guess, this is uh, to show people where this is really all going. Uh, who exactly is the Center of American Progress, Matt? Yeah, so the Center for American Progress is the, I would say, most powerful liberal think tank in D.C. Um, annual budgets, last time I checked on their 501c3 alone was $40 million, um, and they have a 501c4 as well that they don't report the revenue for. Um, it was the Clinton think tank. It's It was the bench for Clinton. While while we were waiting for Clinton to, to run in 2016, basically everyone who was going to serve in her administration sat at cap and, you know, twiddled their thumbs waiting Uh and, you know, it was it's sort of the core of the liberal establishment in in D.C. And uh, so to get them to this point uh, when, you know, that side of things was saying single payer will never happen and, you know, all that kind of stuff is a big move. Right. They went from pie in the sky to maybe we can eat that pie. Yeah, maybe we can do this. And and what's funny is I remember during the primaries, you know, there wasn't a lot of uh, uh, support. There wasn't a lot of intellectual support behind single payer. Like no think tanks had put out plans for single payer. Any part of the reason why I wanted people's policy project. But, you know, I would say during the primaries to uh, podcast, you know, like I was on Slate's Gab Fest and they really pushed me on this. And I would talk to other journalists because, I, you know, I was a Bernie guy and they would push me on this. And I would say, you know, to them every time, the reason the proposals don't exist is not because, like, it's a bad idea. It's just because the institutions that have all the money in D.C. to actually fund this kind of stuff, because it is very expensive to put together these proposals and do the modeling and all that. They just won't do it. That's the only problem we have. They could do it. If CAP wanted to, they could turn around tomorrow and in two months have a totally reasonable, viable single-payer plan. I, you know, I, I tried to hit that over and over again. And I'm sure, you know, I, I was met with all sorts of eye-rolling and like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And, and yet, you know, here we are. Right. And there was something you kept pointing out to on Twitter, I, I remember, about this plan. Uh, one of the, uh, one of their, I mean, again, not to, you know, it's a good move from them. And, uh, it, like you mentioned, there's many people, uh, who are respected in this field who have, uh, put forth similar plans. But you kept bringing up this specific, um, I guess line that they said about, um, people choosing their, uh, their, their, their company's health insurance. Yeah. So, one of the interesting things is the the way the liberal pundits have tried have the consensus position among liberal pundits about why single payer is bad and can't work is has become that you're forcing people off their employer health care. That's the thing over and over again. I have a great right. That was it. Yes. Right. Uh, right. People's Policy Project, where I, I show Jonathan Chait says it. Paul Krugman says it. I've got, I don't know, five or six block quotes, and it's always done in like two or three sentences. There's no elaboration. There's no, you know, that just like everyone has agreed that the hive mind of the liberal pundit sphere has agreed that that's the main problem with single payers, that you're forcing people off their employer health care. Now, the secret with all liberal pundits and really pundits in general is they get their cues from other people. Very few of them are independent thinkers. That's why they all end up converging around the same ideas, the same talking points, which tend to come out of campaigns and consulting shops and whatever. And But that's, that's where they've gone. That's how they decided to say, nope, I can't have single pair. So what was interesting when this plan came out from CAP, Medicare Extra, was to see how do they deal with the fact that this is a single-payer plan that is going to force people off their employer care. And the way that they dealt with it, or at least the way David Leonhardt at the New York Times dealt with it, was to say, no, this plan doesn't force people off their employer care. That's what makes it special. That's what makes it unique. That's what what's makes it different from all these other single-payer plans. And... You know, if you're kind of cynical like me, you're like, of course, David Leonhardt reached this conclusion because one, he doesn't like the left and its single payer uh, positions. Two, he does like cap and liberal establishment uh, uh, places. And so three, he's going to find some way to round that circle and say that that cap's plan doesn't force people off of insurers. And so, yay, now single payer is good. And the left, they were still wrong all along. But we fixed their problems. And what I was pointing out on Twitter and pointing out uh, on, my, uh, on the post that I wrote about this at People's Policy Project is that this is just not true. That what's going to happen under Medicare Extra is that employers are going to go out and decide, you know what, instead of providing Blue Cross and Blue Shield or Aetna, I'm just going to provide Medicare Extra. I'm allowed to do that under this new scheme. I'm just going to provide that to my employees, and I'm going to force them to switch on to it. That's how it's going to work. That's how it's supposed to work is that employers will force you over to Medicare Extra. That's going to be their new insurance offering. And liberal pundits, just they're just ignoring this. And in some ways, it's kind of like, okay, whatever, whatever it takes. If this is how you know, you got to save face going forward – is to be like, no, I was right all along. Single payer uh, is bad because it forces people off of employer care. But this one, you see, it doesn't. If that's what it takes, then okay. But it's it's kind of absurd to have spent, you know, years arguing this point, and then the second a liberal establishment think tank endorses the idea, 
for them to just just kind of wave their hands and pretend like that is not a problem anymore. Right. It's up there with, you know, like the, the people who who like their health insurance. Like, who are these people? Who are these people who who have some sort of emotional attachment to their health insurance? I know. I First of all, I know nobody who likes their health insurance. And second of all, even to go further, this whole uh, if you like your doctor thing that the uh, the right loves to uh, harp on. I, I would say 99.9% of the people I know don't even like their doctor. I mean, <laughs> well, well, right, right. Well, no, I think you make it really – they, they try to play this game where they talk about people like their health care, but health care is not the same thing as insurance, right? Like right. I'm, I like my doctor or the local uh, hospital I go to. I personally don't care one way or another, but you might like that. But that's not the same thing as Aetna, Blue Cross Blue Shield. They're not – they're not the doctors. They just are basically an unnecessary middleman. Uh, no one cares about that. <laughs> oh, I love the place I send money to who then sends money to the doctor. Like, well, I don't care. It's pointless. Um, but then also the other point that I've, I've been trying to make on this over and over again is that if you like your health care or you like your health insurance right now, you don't get to keep it. You lose it all the time. Right. People. People in uh, a great study from the Bureau of Labor Statistics showed that between the age of 18 and 50, a normal worker, an average worker, has 11 jobs. So, yeah, you've lost your health care probably 11 times if you got it from your employer by the age of 50. And that doesn't even account for how many times, and this happened to me, employers in the middle of you working there just change their health insurance company. Right. At the same point. You, so you, you lose it when you lose your job or when you quit or go to another job. You'll lose it if your employer that year is like, oh, I found a cheaper plan. Everyone's got to be on this new plan. You, I mean, you lose it all the time. And so the idea that oh, under the current scheme, they people, they've just been having their health care forever. It's like an heirloom. They, it's just been in their family for, for decades and decades. No one's like that. People are bouncing around insurers all the time. The idea of healthcare, obviously, is in the United States at least linked directly to uh, employment. And now with the ACA, it's it's different. There's uh, again this marketplace, and the, and you know whether there's a mandate or not. Can you kind of also talk about where uninsured people land in all of this, and how their own agency is discussed, uh, as well as how they're viewed as having some fault, some some reason why why now they don't have insurance. Like, how does that all kind of work out in this uh, discussion? So many of these discussions, the way that liberals talk about the ACA, uh, you know, talks about how expensive things are and talks about ways to bring down premiums. Uh, but so many of these conversations leave out the uninsured, and they certainly leave out the real reasons that people are uninsured. Uh, you know, I believe that some 30 million people are still uninsured under the ACA. Uh, a few of those people are people who fall into the Medicaid coverage gap. So those are, you know, states that didn't expand Medicaid, people who would have been eligible for it, who, you know, don't make enough money to qualify for the ACA exchanges. 
that's around 10% of the overall uninsured. So not not no one, but not a super significant portion. Uh, you know, I think that people who cheerlead for the ACA would like to believe that the other 27 million are people who consider themselves young and invincible, who just, you know, are too cocky to buy coverage. They feel like they don't need it. Uh, and so they're always talking up the individual mandate and how there should be an even higher penalty to really punish these young tech titans who they imagine are the ones refusing to buy insurance. But when you look at the data, I think only around 2% of people say that they didn't need or want insurance, and that's why they don't have it. The vast majority, frankly, they just can't afford it. Uh, And that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I don't think that that's hard to understand. Uh, And I also think that, you know, having those callous ideas about this population, about these people who lack meaningful access to healthcare, uh, if you think that they just didn't buy it because they're cocky, it's very easy to blame them for this situation. I mean, I think that the primary advantage of taking healthcare out of the market and taking it out of the consumer realm is because I would love to create a situation wherein no one has to choose between healthcare coverage and diapers one month. You know, the idea that we're forcing this to be a budget item for people who are really, really scraping to get by, the answer to that problem isn't, oh, you know, slightly higher subsidies or even worse, oh, a higher penalty for not playing into this system. Uh, You know, you want to take that decision out of their hands and guarantee healthcare because that's not a decision that anyone should have to make. If you make people make that decision, it's of course not a surprise that poorer people are the ones who lose out. I mean, risk is all they can afford. Um, so single payer as a as a movement, I think we would all agree. Obviously, we're all biased, but I think it has I think it's got the wind behind its back. That's sort of the way the party's going. There's now variations of single payer that are supported by what we would generally consider to be center right or rather center left kind of right wing Democrats. Um, now support single payers becoming conventional wisdom increasingly. Uh, there are efforts by different groups to sort of co-opt that or to muddy the waters. There was the Center for American Progress that announced the Medicare extra for all. It's always important to have extra <laughs> for all in there. Then there was that somewhat dubious group uh, that announced United States of Care that was that had like Robert Fisk on it. It was boosted by John Favreau, the former Obama speechwriter and, and uh, podcast kingpin. Mm-hmm. They, they both used qualifiers like access to healthcare or afford, affordable healthcare, still kind of clinging on to the hyper-qualified sort of neoliberal framing about you know, we, we joke, the more qualifiers you use, the more neoliberal something becomes, <laughs> right. right? So it's not, you have a right to healthcare. It's you have a right to access healthcare. And then you say you have a right to access affordable healthcare. And then you sort of keep adding these qualifiers. And even the Republican plan was called universal right. access. And then you have a right to choose the most accessible and affordable healthcare. Um, can we talk about what these terms mask and what the kind of point of this hyper-qualified, uh, these seem to me, and I'm editorializing a bit here, and you don't, you don't have to agree, that these seem like kind of last-ditch efforts by the corporate wing of the democratic establishment to kind of maintain a fundamentally capitalist or market-placed healthcare system uh, when the sentiment of the base and the party itself is moving towards a just kind of, fuck it, why are we doing this? Let's just do a single payer like every other goddamn country on earth. Yeah, I think that, you know, the phraseology access to affordable healthcare, uh, which is like the ultimate hedge and that comes from a lot of the Democrats who have yet to, you know, fully sign on to uh, the Sanders or Ellison single payer plans. 
Um, I basically think that, you know, that's an extension of the idea. If you've decided that everyone has a right to accessible, affordable health care, then the people who don't have it are just shitty at budgeting. And it's their fault. Take it up with them. Uh, We built a system that they can access. They've just decided not to. And, you know, they should fix that. It's a moral failing. I think that when it comes to the Center for American Progress, the Medicare Extra Plan, maybe this is overly optimistic, but I will say that seeing a mainstream standard bearer of the Democratic Party come up with a plan like this is heartening in that it does go further than anything that's been on the table before this year. And so that seems to me, you know, a very obvious indication that if nothing else, the single payer movement has pushed the Democratic Party to the left in terms of what's on the table from them. Uh, Medicare extra for all would be better than the ACA full stop. Uh, I think that falls short in a lot of ways, but I do want to concede that. Mm -hmm. The big flaw in the logic of the CAP plan is the fact that, uh, you know, once again, it's this fetishization of choice. It's the idea that they will include all uninsured people and then, you know, depending on which employers want to opt into this Medicare extra plan so that instead of taking everyone's plans away from them, only the people who want to, and then the people who, you know, this mythical group of people who love their employer-based insurance plan. I have no fucking idea who these people are who like their insurance so much, but uh, allegedly there are so many of them that it's going to completely thwart the chances of single payer ever succeeding. And so, you know, I think the idea there, the idea that, oh, we can't possibly take their choice of insurers away from them uh, is really what's animating a lot of this. And besides being based on a faulty notion, I think that, you know, that kind of plan forfeits a lot of the advantages that single payer offers. And that's not only, you know, the idea of trying to entrench healthcare as a right and as a non-market commodity, which I think is important. Uh, But it also forfeits a lot of the efficiencies. One of the reasons that single payer tends to be more cost effective than other multi-payer systems is because, you know, having only one unified public insurance pool that pays providers a single rate, you don't have all these negotiators. You don't have all these claims assessors. You don't have obscene amounts of overhead costs just paying people to keep all of these bills straight. So if you have this system that maintains the private sector, uh, even beyond the profiteering, you basically keep a lot of that infrastructure in place, which precludes the system's ability to efficiently lower costs the way that a well-designed system should. So I'm not sure, you know, I'm a little skeptical of the idea that this was an active plan to thwart single payers advance. Um, I, I mean, I think that that might be part of the logic for some people. I think that they are unable to think outside of the very narrow box that they've found themselves in to consider it a legitimate possibility. But I think that the fact that they're even where they are now, I think speaks very highly for uh, where the movement is.
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, join your local single-payer advocacy group. It's been nine months since Bernie Sanders, flanked by a dozen Democrats, officially announced his Medicare for All bill. Though numerous political fires are all raging at once these days, the single-payer movement is alive and well and still building steam. Last week, medical professionals, politicians, activists, and leaders of the Medicare for All movement held their annual single-payer strategy conference in Minnesota. The conference, jointly sponsored by the Labor Campaign for Single-Payer and Healthcare Now, aimed to construct a national campaign to make Medicare for All a reality by building momentum through the 2020 elections. If you're interested, you can watch some of the conference on the Social Security Works Facebook page via their posts from June 22nd to the 24th. Although the conference helped shape the launch of the national campaign, the campaign will be executed on the ground locally, and that means that you can help by taking the time now to get engaged with your local organizations fighting for single-payer. Go to healthcare-now.org and click Join a Local Action Group under the Action tab. There you will find a state-by-state list of local organizations working for single-payer healthcare across the country. You may even find that your state is in need of a local advocacy group, in which case, consider becoming the founding member. We obviously need a 50-state coverage strategy. And, of course, continue to put pressure on members of Congress to sign on as co-sponsors to the Medicare for All Act in the House and Senate. If they haven't seen the writing on the wall yet, come the midterms this November, they certainly will. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if making Medicare for All a reality as soon as possible is important to you, be sure to hit the share button to spread the word about joining your local single-payer advocacy group via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. I've been trying to find for years an example of another nation, industrialized nation on Earth, that has had demonstrations against health care as we've seen in this country. Have you ever found another example of a so-called civilized society demonstrating against health care? Well, people from other countries look at what's going on in the United States and they, they just can't believe it in terms of healthcare. They say, why do you guys put up with this? Shouldn't healthcare just be like water and air and electricity? So I think, yes, there's a, a kind of sense of disbelief in the rest of the world about how we treat healthcare. But I think what we saw after the elections last year was that people are not so much demonstrating against healthcare. And this is, I think, part of the problem with our narrative that they say, well, we don't want to be forced to buy insurance. We don't want to pay for health care. That's not true. Everyone wants health care. When you're nine months pregnant, you need to deliver a baby. When you're having crushing chest pain, you need to have a, an emergency room and potentially surgery. But we don't want the kind of crazy health care system we're engaged in today. And it's so politicized that we're confusing like 
are you right or you left with do you want health care? People want health care. Then why do you think people seem to be against Obamacare writ large? I mean, if you but if you break it down into individual pieces, it seemed like there was a lot more support for aspects of it when it was removed from the name Obamacare or was removed from it's the Democrats health care plan. What is the issue that you see many people being nervous about or against that drives that? Well, I think it's a lack of understanding, largely. I mean, what's happened over the last 25 years is our healthcare system has become so complicated and so messy and so expensive that people don't understand really how it works. So they don't understand, you know, when there was this whole narrative about we've got to, you know, repeal and replace Obamacare with something better. A lot of people who were like, yeah, do it, didn't understand that their health insurance was coming from Obamacare, right? So, there's the, it's such a convoluted system that people don't know either who to blame when it doesn't work or who to thank when it does. And of course, part of that is caught up in the partisan politics in the U.S., where everything connected to Obama was was negative for a certain group of people. So, you know, when the ACA was enacted and when it went out and when Medicaid was expanded in a number of states and a lot of people got insurance for the first time, literally tens of millions of people, even the Obama administration was a little reluctant to kind of label it Obamacare for fear that people would would react badly to it. So again, you know, what we saw in those town hall meetings uh, last year was people standing up and saying, oh, wait a second. I, yeah, I voted against it, but I didn't understand that my Medicaid expansion or my insurance subsidy, that's Obamacare too. Your constituents do not want you to repeal ACA, will you have the guts to go against the Republicans in your party and the president and, and stand with us and say no? I'm on Obamacare. Yay. If it wasn't for Obamacare, we wouldn't be able to afford insurance. I can't put all my trust in someone saying, we're going to make a plan, but we've had six years and we don't have a plan. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Good question. So we need a lot of depolitization of healthcare in this country because ultimately it's not a political issue. It's a rights issue or it's just a need issue. You cannot do without healthcare. What are the main forces that are driving up the cost of prescription drugs, healthcare in general? You write in your book about the cost of hospital stays just going up somewhat exponentially. What, what's driving all of this? Well, we trust in the market to price healthcare in this country, and it, it isn't a market. You know, we like to say it's a market, but of course, you look at hospital bills, $3,000 for a screw, $15,000 for an infusion of an antibiotic. Basically, so there are no downward forces on the price of prescription drugs, the price of hospitalizations, the price of devices, the price of everything. And I think that's partly why I wrote the book, which is because people want a bad guy. They want to say, oh, it's pharma or, oh, it's the doctors or, oh, it's the hospitals. And it's everyone. Everyone is feeding at this trough of a healthcare industry that's hugely profitable, that's hugely powerful, the biggest lobbying in, in Washington comes from them. And guess what? The food in that trough is our health. And that's not okay by me. In uh, An American Sickness, you write, in the past quarter century, the American medical system has stopped focusing on health or even science. Instead, it attends more or less single-mindedly on its own profits. Expand on what you meant by that. 
Well, I, you know, I trained as a doctor about 25 years ago, so I care deeply about this profession. And what I saw uh, after I, I left many years ago for journalism was kind of slow conversion to a business. Medicine has always been a little bit of a business, right? You had to keep your office open. But the health issues were on the front burner. What was right for the patient was on the front burner. But in my days of training, I started seeing these kind of business consultants coming into the hospital. Um, there was the HMO era in the 90s where hospitals were feeling kind of squeezed. And that's when we saw really the wholesale movement of business into healthcare. So you had consultants from Deloitte, from McKinsey, uh, moving into the healthcare arena and coming into hospitals and saying, you know, and these were not healthcare people. This could have been a chicken processing plant. They just said, oh, well, how can, how can we make more money doing what we're doing? And basically what the consultant said was, well, you can just bill differently, right? Why are you giving away that time in the recovery room for free? You know, you could bill by the minute. Why are you charging only, you know, five cents for the Tylenol or giving it away? You can charge $17 for it. There was no rationale for what things were charged or billed. And then, of course, you know, that kind of spiraled in an atmosphere where in earlier days, if you were lucky enough to have employer-provided insurance, your employer was paying most of the premium. There wasn't a lot in the way of co-pays and deductibles. So we didn't look at our bills and we didn't notice that inflation going on. And now what we have is this hugely inflated pricing system. You know, we're paying our premiums. We're paying those deductibles and co-pays. And what's most worrisome to me and where I concluded in the book was that now the values of business are on the front burner and the values of healthcare are on the back burner. So what do hospitals look at when they're evaluating their CEO now? It's not infection rates. It's not cure rates. It's return on investment. It's profit, which in the nonprofit world you call surplus instead of profit. It's efficiency. And you know what? Those are not the values of healthcare. Those are the values of business. And so when I say, you know, the subtitle of the book is um, how healthcare became big business and how you can take it back. When I say take it back, what I mean is we've got to reverse that and have the values of healthcare on the front burner again. How would a single payer system address some of the problems that you've identified with the cost of pharmaceuticals and the you know extreme for-profit nature of uh, of the healthcare system in this country. You know, where it's used, it works quite well um, to control costs, but it's not the only option. I mean, basically, the way it works is to say, okay, if there's one big payer, the government, or maybe we could even look at a kind of modified single payer in Medicare, they have incredible bargaining power. So it brings down the price of of pharmaceuticals. It also brings down the prices of things like hospitalization. I mean, Medicare has set rates for hospitalizations, and they are far, far lower than what's paid in the commercial market. You know, hospitals may say, oh, they don't pay us enough. We can't exist this way. You know, Medicare uh, says, well, no, we're paying you cost plus. We're paying you what we think it costs to deliver the care plus a profit. So, you know, where between those two extremes will uh, a single pair would fall? I'm not quite sure. On the other hand, when hospitals say to me, oh, you know, we're, we're losing money or we're troubled, you know, we need what we need to be paid much more. Go into your local hospital. Look at the, you know, the marble in the lobby and the art. For the most part, there are struggling hospitals, but for the most part, our big hospital systems do not look like struggling institutions. They look like um, good businesses, which they are. 
Right. Uh, one of the the striking parts of your book was you were you were writing about fee schedules in, in a variety of countries: Germany, Japan, Belgium. And uh, this is uh, a quote from your book: "It is efficient in the United States. Doctors spend one sixth of their time on administration and medical practices to hire extra staff to wrangle with insurers. A sonogram of the heart costs anywhere from a thousand to eight thousand dollars in the United States." The 2014 negotiated fixed price in Japan and Belgium was under $150. Talk about that system and how it (laughs) it could work in the U.S. The divergence is so striking. I mean, so many things that in our country have literally like doubled, tripled, quadrupled in price have gone down just manifold in other countries. And why is that? It's because in a lot of other countries, and I'll point out that these are not all single-payer countries. Belgium is not, but there is price setting. Japan happens to be a single-payer country, and this just shows how meaningless the word is in and of itself. Japan is single-payer, but hospitals and doctors are private. But what those two countries have is some form of massive price setting and price negotiation. And they they use some pretty interesting logic in that. For example, in Japan, they'll say, okay, if something new whiz-bang technology comes on the medical market, you can charge a lot for it. We're going to discuss with you what it's worth and negotiate a price, but you can you can get really good money for that. But guess what? As it gets older, it has to go down in price because that's the way markets should work because an MRI or a sonogram of the heart, which was, you know, revolutionary when I was training, yeah, they're pretty commonplace now. You can do them by the bedside. And so, yeah, maybe there are some machines that are the newest iteration, but most people don't need those, so we're not going to pay for them. And I think that's something we have been allergic to doing in this country. And just that notion of as drugs get older, as technology gets older, the price should go down, as it does in every aspect of our lives. The opposite happens in American healthcare, and that makes us exceptional, unique, and kind of suckers, I think. We've just heard clips today, starting with Citations Needed, speaking with Natalie Schur about how neoliberals turned healthcare into a commodity. The Zero Hour explains that single-payer healthcare is extremely popular, but that corporate Democrats are taking steps to hide that fact. The Doomed podcast talked with Matt Brunig to help explain the new proposal from the Center for American Progress, Medicare Extra. Citations Needed continued their conversation with Natalie Schur about why a market-based system will always disadvantage the poor and why Medicare Extra may be built on faulty assumptions while forfeiting many of the efficiencies of single-payer. Our activism for today is for you to use healthcare-now.org to find your local single-payer advocacy group. And finally, we just heard from Intercepted speaking with Elizabeth Rosenthal explaining why our healthcare system is so bad and why we have such difficulty breaking through the confusion to fix it. And for further exploration into the subject, I really recommend diving deeper into the Citations Needed episode from June 21st, which is all great. Uh, Same with the full-length interview from the June 13th episode of Intercepted. And I also want to mention that the Doomed podcast is being featured for the first time today. That show is hosted by Matt Bennett. 
Bender, a former producer on the longtime friend of the show, The Majority Report, so check them out. Uh, as always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing, and normally we would have voicemails. For some reason, we simply don't have voicemails today. Nothing new came in, uh, but I want to take the end of the show to talk about one more sort of concept that I came across when researching today's show, and it's it's this great combination of two ideas I was already familiar with, but I hadn't put them together yet, and the clip just didn't quite fit in the show, uh, so I just want to tell you about it now. Basically, it's what you get when you combine the idea of uh, when mostly women, not always, but mostly women who find themselves in relationships that they wish they weren't in for any variety of reasons, but they find themselves stuck there for financial reasons. You take that concept and you combine it with what we already know about, I think what I've referred to as being a healthcare hostage at your job, being held at your job because you're connected to this employer-based healthcare is something that I've talked about many times, has been talked about on the show, and the need for women to have independence or, frankly, everyone to have independence financially and otherwise so that they are not stuck in an unhealthy relationship that they're dependent on financially. Of course, when you put those together, of course that goes for healthcare as well. There are all kinds of people, for sure, stuck in a relationship where if they leave, they not only lose potentially, you know, financial support that they may need, but they also will end up losing their healthcare benefits if they get it through their spouse's work. So this, is, of course, is just one comment out of many being made in all of these, you know, dozens and dozens of interviews and people writing articles about why a system like single payer is better. And I just get this feeling like if healthcare weren't life and death, it would be a really fun topic to discuss just philosophically and to sort of put in a debate class or something and just roll around in all the different angles that you could come at this issue from. And I say fun, I mean like you you could go your whole life maybe and never stop coming up with more good reasons why we should simply have everyone covered completely independent of literally everything else in their lives, independent of their family situation, independent of their job situation, independent of the, their personal financial situation, all of it. And having healthcare would help so many people in so many different ways. Like you might never stop writing a list of ways that that helps individuals be better individuals and it helps society be a better society but of course instead of it being a fun exercise it is absolutely life and death and so it's really just a horrible and tragic exercise in continually coming up with more and more reasons why it's an absolute travesty that we haven't already fixed the situation so I just wanted to throw in that little extra bit of reasoning, uh, just put it on the pile, add it to the list. It's one of those things that was like at the intersection of two things I knew a fair amount about and care a lot about, and I just hadn't quite made that connection myself before, so it was nice to hear. 
And now that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening, of course. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can be found in the show notes on the blog and in the notes on the device you are listening to right now, whichever is easier for you. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Thank you.